0: The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Morning.
1: And the scripture this morning is 1 John chapter 5 verses 6 through 12, for using the black pew Bible that's going to be on page 1023. Please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 John, chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The Word of the Lord.
0: Awesome. Good morning, Delta. How are you guys doing? Good. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, we are nearing the end of our series in First John, John's first letter to the churches that he was the pastor over. And this morning what we're going to see is this. Uh, that God is going to give uh, a testimony concerning his son. He's going to come along and give us various witnesses, which are going to help confirm for us that Jesus truly is the Christ. Jesus is the son of God. So as Mallory is reading here, um, maybe some of these words seem um, sort of odd and out of place. John really hasn't used this language so far in his letter. Things like the water and the blood and this idea um, of the spirit and testimony and these sorts of things. But this morning, I trust that God is going to make some things clear through me um, as we listen to um, Jesus speak to us from his word. So let's pray and then we'll we'll dig in and get, get started. Jesus, we believe in the power of the Spirit to come and do what we cannot do, which is bring clarity to the Word of God in such a way to where hearts are changed and made new. We believe in the power of the Spirit to do that. I am incapable of doing this. The Spirit is fully capable of doing this. So in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would come and bring clarity to the text, doing what you do best, testifying to the truths of Jesus Christ as our Savior of great sinners. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Bertrand Russell was an atheistic philosopher who lived from 1872 until the year 1970. He was a prolific author, wrote books and articles, autobiography, all kinds of things. But one of his greatest works um, that is known most by people is a title of a book called Why I Am Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell. And in this book, what he did was he argued that all organized religions are the residue of the barbaric past. They dwindle to mere hypocritical superstitions, and ultimately they just have no basis in reality. That was really the premise of of this book that he wrote. But on one occasion, someone came up to Bertrand Russell and asked him what he would say to God if he found himself standing before God. And to this question, Russell answered this way. I probably would ask, sir, why did you not give me better evidence? Why would you not give me better evidence? Now, for many people, this response by Bertrand Russell, it just rings all too true. They may have gone to church as a child or they heard about Jesus from a religious family member Or they may even have read about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus in the Bible for themselves. But at the end of the day, when their head is on the pillow at night, what they do is they draw the conclusion that all this Jesus stuff is just really far-fetched. It's too far out there. The claims that Christianity makes in regard to who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, is just out there. It's baloney. It's too, too far, too gone, can't be believed. And so like Bertrand Russell before them, they just draw the conclusion, there simply is not enough reliable evidence to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But this morning in our text, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12, the Apostle John is going to wholeheartedly disagree with the statement made by Bertrand Russell. Last week we saw John proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God. And for John, these twin assertions concerning Jesus are not just mere statements. It wasn't like he was just had to fill some space, he had a little bit of scroll left, and when he was writing his letter, it's like, I guess I should just say some things about Jesus. Well, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God, after all, I need to like, take up all the parchment space here. They're just sort of statements to be said, they're not meant to have any impact or bearing on That is, a, that is not what John the Apostle is doing. These statements that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God are facts which are to be believed upon because there is abundant and overwhelming evidence that they are true. Now, the question that many people ask, and it might even be a question that you've asked in the past, it might be even a question that you're asking yourself right now in this moment, and it's a question of why. Well, okay, so Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but, like, why should I believe in him? Like, why believe in Jesus as the Christ? Or perhaps it's a question of what. Well, okay, so Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, but what evidence is there that can come along and reliably support this to be true. Moreover, you just might be asking if there is anyone who can come along and give reliable testimony that these things are true. And if they are true, then you might even follow up with a further question and be like, well, what are these testimonies? Like, what are these witnesses? Who is saying it and what are they saying, which come along and support the twin assertions that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God. And in answer to these questions, if we could sit down and bring the Apostle John before us and we could just pour a cup of coffee and enter into a hearty conversation with him as John has been beating the drum over and over and over again saying, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Son of God, salvation is found in him. And we could go, I I need to have some questions answered. I I need to get some things off my chest. I've got some stuff rolling around in my mind. I just can't quite figure out what to do with them. And we put those questions in front of the Apostle John. I believe he would do this. Let me answer these questions for you. And he would point right to these verses. 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. This is the answer to these kinds of questions that we find. Some of us even find in our mind right now. So this morning what we're going to see are just two truths that are going to rise up out of this text. Two truths that are going to come and just land in our lap. Two truths that are going to force us to respond to the testimony that we're going to see in these verses. And the first truth we're going to see in verses 6 through 9 is this. That God has a testimony concerning His Son. It's not that God has not spoken or has not given a witness or not given a testimony. God has a testimony concerning his son. And his testimony is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of God. That's the first thing we're going to see. Look at your copy of scripture. Notice what John writes starting in verse 6. He says, this is he who came By water and blood. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Jesus Christ. And what you need to know is this. Jesus Christ, He came not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who comes along, testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. The spirit and the water and the blood and these three witnesses all agree with one another. So if we are willing to receive the testimony of men, then we should be very willing to receive the testimony of God who is greater for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. So the first truth is this. God's testimony is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of God. Now, when you and I read these verses, it isn't hard to imagine a courtroom setting where witnesses are being called upon to give, a, to, give a, to give a testimony. The overwhelming theme of these verses is the idea of testimony. Seven verses, ten times the word testimony or the verb testified is swirling around in these verses. It's obvious John is living and swimming in the stream of what what it means to be a witness to something, what it means to testify to something, to have a testimony concerning something. This is the exact theme of what is going on in these verses. And in the courtroom of these verses, John turns our attention to three witnesses which all agree and confirm God's testimony concerning his Son. And for John, these witnesses are three, the Spirit, the water... And the blood. So the first witness that John calls to the stand is the witness of Jesus' baptism. This is what John was referring to when he wrote, This is he who came by water. When you read that word water, the idea that we're meant to have in mind is this. The act of Jesus in his baptism, which he went through at the very beginning as he entered into his public ministry. So one way you and I can be assured, John says is that Jesus is the Son of God, comes from the event and the things surrounding Jesus' baptism. When Jesus came onto the scene, when he publicly entered into the work given to him by the Father, his baptism by water, John says, became a witness that Jesus was just no ordinary man. So if you jump back into the Gospels, you can find this in in Matthew chapter 3. You can find it in Mark chapter 1. And in Mark's gospel, Mark recorded the baptism of Jesus like this. These are the words that Mark wrote when Jesus was baptized. Listen, there's going to be this theme, this idea of baptism, water, spirit, sun. They're all going to mix around in these two verses that come out of Mark's gospel. He wrote this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. It is in you I am well pleased. And so at his baptism, what you have is Jesus coming up out of the water. So there's that language from our verses this morning. You have the Spirit descending upon him, which is going to be some of the language we're going to get to here in a little bit. And then what you have is God the Father declaring that this one who just came up out of the water, this one who just had the Spirit descend on him like a dove, I am now declaring to you he's not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's not just a Galilean carpenter. This is my Son, the Son of God incarnate in the flesh, and I am well pleased in him. In a nutshell, the baptism of Jesus was a Trinitarian witness which declared Jesus to be the Son of God. And essentially, Jesus' baptism says this, Look at the Holy Spirit of God descending on Him and anointing Him. It says, Listen to the voice of the Father and His announcement concerning Him. So for John, Jesus' baptism stands as a witness. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. He's no mere ordinary man. Now the second witness that the Apostle John calls to the stand is the crucifixion of Jesus. So when John the Apostle says, this is he who came by water, he's referencing the baptism of Christ. And then when he says, this is he who came by blood, what he's doing is he's making a reference to the crucifixion of Christ. This is what he's referring to. This is he who came by the blood. Crucifixion. So now John is calling to the stand. Listen, the baptism of Jesus, it stands as a witness. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. All right, thank you, sir. You can now sit down. I'm calling witness number two to the stand. I'm going to call the crucifixion of Christ. And the crucifixion of Christ comes and it takes the stand to bear witness that Jesus is no mere ordinary man. So another way that you and I can be assured that Jesus is the Son of God is by looking at the events which surround the crucifixion of Christ. Through his baptism, Jesus was declared the Son of God. And set apart for his work, but through his death on the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, came to finish his work. Remember, to the churches that John is writing to, there were those who were trying to deceive them. Pastor Tom preached on this now several weeks ago. I was able to preach on this just a handful of weeks ago. The problem existing in the churches that fell under the leadership of the Apostle John was this. There were people who were in their midst coming along and they looked legit on the outside. They said right Jesus' words. They said they believed right Jesus' things. But when it came down to it, they failed to hit the mark. Because ultimately they were pulling people away from Christ, and the things they were saying about Jesus did not line up with the apostolic witness recorded for us in the teachings of the prophets and in the teachings of the apostles. That's been a lot, a real short summary of a lot of what we've been talking about in 1 John. And John is almost like trying to say here, like, remember, remember, there are people who are trying to, to deceive you. And when you read between the lines of these verses I think what comes out is this that these deceivers were willing to accept that Jesus came by water they were willing to accept this idea of the baptism in a sense confirming that Jesus is the Christ but they are unwilling to accept his crucifixion as a witness That Jesus really was the Christ, the Son of God. That's why John goes on to say, listen, Jesus Christ came by the water, by the blood, but not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. They held that the man Jesus became the Christ at his baptism, but then ceased being the Christ at his crucifixion. But against this, John comes along and argues that Jesus didn't become the Christ at his baptism and then the Spirit of Christ somehow leave the man Jesus at his crucifixion. Know that when Jesus was baptized, he was baptized as the Christ. And that when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified as the Christ. This is why John says what he says in that last part of verse 6 there. Jesus of Nazareth was not God's special agent who was adopted at his baptism but abandoned at the cross. He was and is the eternal Son of God who entered this world in time and space. He is the one who died as our wrath absorbing substitute. This ultimately is the good news of the cross. So just imagine if what these false teachers said was true, basically what they were saying was this that the Christ spirit descended on jesus at his baptism it fueled him to be able to go around teaching healing doing miracles pointing people to god but that when the man went to the cross and when he was pinned to the tree the spirit of christ left him so that ultimately who was being sacrificed on the cross wasn't god himself for the sin of mankind it was just the galilean carpenter the man jesus And if the false teachers, what they were saying was actually true, then we're in a world of hurt. Because now we don't have a legitimate sacrifice for our sins. We just have a man dying on a Roman cross like any other man in the history of Roman rule. When criminals went to the cross and just died. So John comes along and says, no, 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 no. When Jesus was baptized, the man Jesus, he was fully the Christ. He didn't become the Christ at his baptism. He was already the Christ at his baptism. And when he lived his life and when he was teaching, when he was healing, when he was pointing people to the kingdom, repent for the kingdom of hand, kingdom of God is at hand, believe, come, know the Father. When the gospel proclamation was on his lips, he was fully the Christ. And then when Jesus was betrayed and he was pinned to that tree, He didn't die as just the man Jesus. He died as the Christ. This is why the cross is such good news. Because the death of Jesus isn't the death of just some Galilean lunatic. It's not just some carpenter over there who had God delusions thinking like he was was the one who could get some stuff done, but really the guy was a nut job. The testimony and the good news of the gospel of the cross is this that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. That God sent His only Son into the world so that you and I might live through Him. That God loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice. For our sins that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, and the culminating crescendo of the Scriptures is that Jesus is this Son of God. That's the good news of the Gospel of the Cross. And so what John says is, listen, not only does Jesus' baptism stand as a witness. I mean, we've seen a lot of people be baptized, but, man, did you see Jesus get baptized? Like the heavens, it says, were torn open. Whatever this means, I have no clue. All I know is it's true. Is that the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove? People are looking at him and they see this thing, the heavens torn open and something falling, coming, descending on to Christ, and it looked like a dove. And I'm like, man, that didn't happen. I've never seen that happen before. And then you hear this audible voice from the heavens God the Father speaking, looking at his son, saying, This is my son in whom I'm well. Please, John says, listen, Jesus' baptism, it just stands, flat out stands as a witness that he is the Son of God. Listen to what the Father says to him, but he says, so does the crucifixion of Christ. Now the third witness that John calls to the stand is a spirit. So the baptism has come. Thank you, baptism. Good hearty witness. You can now sit down. Then who came up second? It was the crucifixion of Jesus. Hearty testimony. Thank you very much. You can now go sit down. So John the prosecutor says, <clears throat> I've got a third witness. I'd like to call to the stand. He's going to bear witness concerning the God's son. And it's going to be the Holy Spirit himself. And so he calls him up. Now when you look at those verses, the end of verse 6, 7, and 8, the point here is pretty simple. John is just saying this. The Spirit is the truth. And when the Spirit testifies concerning Jesus testifies the things He knows to be true concerning the Son. He bears witness to the truth. He is the truth. So that when He testifies, He speaks the truth. When He speaks the truth, everything He's speaking becomes a testimony towards something true. That's the, that's the play back and forth that John is giving here. Now, Jesus just said this exact same thing concerning the Holy Spirit when He said, Listen, there's going to come this one, this counselor, this helper... And when this Counselor comes, whom I am going to send to you from the Father, what you can know is this: He is the Spirit of Truth. Jesus says, "Who goes out from the Father." And what you need to know about the Spirit of Truth is this: He will testify about me. That's John chapter fifteen, verse twenty-six. In short, the Apostle John's saying that this, when the, what the Spirit says is to be trusted, when he testifies concerning to Christ, he is to be trusted because the Spirit speaks God's truth. When the Spirit takes the witness stand, he has no need to declare, I swear by Almighty God I'm going to tell the truth. Like, we have to do that. We go and take the witness stand in the court of law, what we have to do is say, I swear by something outside of myself that I'm really going to tell the truth. And I think what it is, it's a little indication that we know, like, we're not naturally inclined to be truth-tellers. humanity. And so that's why we lay our hand on the Bible. And what we're saying is, like, like there's someone who is the truth. We're not the truth. There is someone else who is the truth. And I'm swearing by this thing outside of myself, God help me to be a truth-teller in this moment. The Spirit comes to take the stand. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to say, I'm swearing on something outside of myself that I'm going to tell the truth. Basically what he's saying is I'm swearing upon myself because I am God and I am the truth that what I'm speaking right now can be wholeheartedly received. It can be wholeheartedly believed. The Spirit is God, the God who is truth. Again, Jesus says this in John chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes. So the Apostle John, he's not making anything up new. He's just repeating what Jesus has taught him. Jesus says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. The spirit isn't going to go rogue here and just start saying whatever he wants to say. But whatever the spirit hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The spirit, Jesus says, will glorify me for he will take what is mine and in turn declare it to you. So John just simply says, listen, when the spirit and the water and the blood come together, what you have is a unified testimony of these three things agreeing to one common witness. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of God. They culminate together in one unified testimony, declaring these truths to be evident about Jesus. And the reason why they agree is because God Himself is behind them. John says, ultimately, this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. What? What is? These things. Spirit, baptism, crucifixion this he says is the testimony of god that he's born concerning his son and john says if we're willing to receive the testimony of men especially when it is established by two or three witnesses then how much more should we be willing to receive the testimony of god when he has just supplied his own threefold witness of the spirit the water and the blood what john is doing here is he's just sort of he's operating on an old testament assumption You go read Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15, and as Moses was giving the law, he said this at the human level, interactions between men and women. If someone were to come and accuse Dan Luce, Dan Luce, I'm accusing you of this crime. Moses said, we cannot convict Dan Luce of that crime unless two or three witnesses gather together and agree, corroborating, confirming that what we're accusing Dan Luce of is true. And so John is just simply saying this, listen, if we're willing to operate on that assumption at the human level, that if two or three witnesses come together and they're unified in their testimony regarding one specific thing, and we go, listen, those two or three witnesses, they're corroborating, they're confirming one another. We're just simply going to believe it. Then John says, listen, if we're willing to receive the testimony of men in this way, how much more so should we receive the greater testimony of God who's just given his own threefold witness, spirit, water, and blood? This is the testimony that God has born concerning his son. So what John is just doing is he's just calling us to see that God has clearly testified that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And in complete contradiction to what Bertrand Russell said, God has given us ample evidence to believe. And what makes this testimony such good news for us and the world is that God has never testified like this concerning anyone else in the world. It's not like God is going around saying, and this person here I'm going to testify spirit, water, blood. And this person here I'm going to testify to them spirit, water, blood. And this person over here and this person in the 1700s and this person in the 1600s and this person in America and this person in China. He's not doing that. He's done it one time. For one person. Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilean carpenter. Concerning the testimony, it was a one-off deal. Revolving around Jesus Christ. I mean, we could spend all our days searching the histories of mankind, and we will never, ever, ever find another person in all of history who has had this kind of testimony declared and confirmed about them. It's like what I said earlier no one has ever been baptized and had the Spirit of God descend on them like a dove. Nobody. One person Jesus. No one has ever come up out of the baptismal waters. And heard the audible voice of God declaring his delight in them. Nobody. One person. Jesus. No one has ever been sent to die as the savior of the world. Jesus has. Or had the noonday sun turned to black while they were dying on the cross. Matthew 27, verse 45. Or had the curtain of the temple split in two from top to bottom coupled with an earthquake. Matthew 27, verse 51. Or have a number of Old Testament saints actually resurrect from the dead as a result of their death. Again, Matthew chapter 27. Or in the end, as they just died on the cross, have a Roman centurion come up who had witnessed all these things, then turn to look at the one that was just executed before him and say, This truly was the Son of God. It's never happened. Except one time. Jesus Christ. Listen, the witness of God the Father concerning his son is singular and it is unique. The singularity of this witness, it just cannot be escaped. And the uniqueness of this testimony beckons us to come and believe it is testimony which requires a response either a response of humble belief where we look at the evidence before us of the spirit of the baptism of the crucifixion and we humbly bow before god almighty and say yes i see the evidence that jesus christ is the son of god and i believe Or it will either be a response of rebellious unbelief saying, listen, I see what you're saying to me, but I'm going to choose the path of unbelief in this moment. I will not yield to the evidence at hand. See, the issue isn't that God has failed to provide testimony necessary for belief. It's that men and women look upon the testimony provided by God. They recognize what this would mean for them, that if these things are true about Jesus, then Jesus has the rightful claim as the king over my life. They then take this truth and suppress this truth because they bristle against this claim because they don't want Jesus to be their king over them. And what they do is they thumb their nose, they turn and go the other way saying, I see the evidence, I just don't like what it would mean for my life. And they say, no thanks. And then they walk out the door saying, you can have your Jesus, but I don't want your Jesus. See, unbelief isn't like a, a, like a disease to be pitied, one pastor said. It's a sin that's to be repented of. According to the gospel. The apostle john we have what we need to see and to believe what we do is we pull off romans 1 over and over and over again we see the self-evident truths of god stamped in creation and then we see the specially revealed evidence of god in his word we look at it and we just go i see what it's saying really not hard to understand but i love me being in charge of me more than i love the idea of jesus being in charge of me so you can keep your jesus I'm going to go on and just do whatever I want to do. And John says that when we find ourselves in this place, we are to repent. We are to run to the Son who has been self-evidently revealed from the God who's proclaiming true testimony concerning His Son. Remember, John wants you and I to see that the purpose of God's testimony concerning his son is meant to evoke faith in Christ. John isn't giving us verses 6 through 9 so we can just have more fathead information about Jesus. Like, notice what he does. John specifically links two arguments together. He gives us testimony upon testimony upon testimony upon testimony in verses 6 through 9 so that when we see this testimony, the true testimony concerning the witness of God would evoke faith in Christ. This is exactly what John continues on to next. Just look at what the language John uses in verses 10, 11, and 12 there. It's the language of belief. It's the language of testimony. It's the language of seeing that God is telling the truth and those who believe over against those who think God is a liar and those who draw the conclusion, I will not believe. John says, whoever believes in the Son of God, this is the one who has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Why? Why does not believing in the testimony of God concerning His Son make God to be a liar? Because he just simply has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning His Son. The nutshell essence of the testimony is this. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. So, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So the second truth we see is this, that, that John wants us to see that those who believe in the Son of God have eternal life. There's a connection there. See the testimony. Behold the testimony. Look at the God who cannot lie in what He is saying concerning the Son, and then let these realities work themselves on your heart so that it brings you to the place where you repent and believe, receive and believe in Christ. Christ. So what we see in these last few verses is that John just once again characteristically paints with the language of contrast. Um, Bob Ross, anybody? Happy Little Trees. I think he's out on Netflix now. Is this right? Yeah, right? So like you can watch every episode of Bob Ross. I know this guy doesn't know who Bob Ross is, man. Charles Campbell, you're killing me, man, that you don't know who Bob Ross is. But like Bob Ross, right, like the little painting scheme, um, he's got that little, you know, that little oval-shaped deal where you put your thumb in and it's got all the little, you know, pe- little daubs of paint on there and you're doing the thing. If John the Baptist were to be Bob Ross and he's got his little portrait thing up here, John has two colors on his little, his little palette, black and white. Painting an extravagant picture, but he's painting in black and white. This is just the language of started contrast. It's no surprise. John has been doing this in basically almost every single verse all the way through his whole entire letter. He's like, truth, it's either this or this. Man, there's no gray. Truth, you're either here or you're here. There's just just no gray. Reality, you're either believing or you're not believing. And just over and 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 over again, he's been doing this in 10, 11, and 12, he's doing the exact same thing. So what's he driving at here with this language of contrast, this picture he's painting for us? Just look at verse 11. He just boils down the testimony of God when he says, listen, this is the testimony. So what's the testimony of God? It's this, verse 11. God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. You and I can have the gift of eternal life, and the gift of eternal life is wrapped up in the Son, who is the Christ. Eternal life can be found in him. And so John says, on one hand, there are those who have received God's testimony. What's true about them? These things are true about them. They believe in the Son of God. They have God's gift of eternal life in the Son. In short, beginning of verse 12, because they have the Son, they have eternal life. Truth. That's the black. He just painted that picture out for us. All revolving around that testimony centered there in verse 11. Now what I want to do is just hit pause here real quick and just sort of pastorally apply something as we move on down the road, okay? I just want to hit pause and just say something here. Like, listen, one question you might be asking yourself is this. Well, how can I know that I have... Truly believed in the Son of God. Because look at what John is saying here. Whoever believes in the Son of God, God has given us eternal life. Eternal life is found in the Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. And so some of us have a more sensitive soul. Some of us struggle and wrestle with assurance of salvation. Am I truly believing in the Son of God in a saving way? Am I truly trusting and resting in Him as my only hope of salvation? How can I know that I have truly believed in the Son of God? How can I know that I am a recipient of God's gift of eternal life in the Son? And to this, John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. For those of you in the NIV, I think it says something like this. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Has this testimony in his heart. See, one way that you can know that God the Father by the Spirit has brought you to the place of genuine belief in the Son of God is because right now, as you hear these words from the Bible, the Spirit of God is confirming to your spirit, yes, you are a child of God. Yes, you are in Christ. Yes, your belief in the Son of God is genuine and true. You're singing songs. You're hearing the Word of God preached. And you find yourself going, yes! Yes! Like I see these things to be true. And what the Bible teaches us is that those of us who are dead and outside of Christ, we don't respond that way to the truths of who Jesus is preached and to the truths of who Jesus is Son. But when we come to the place where our hearts are stirred and our, our emotions are just going right with the truths of the word of God being preached and the word of God being sung what we don't do is say man I don't know and who is this and I don't know where it's coming from what we can do is rest in the assurance that the spirit of God is the one who's confirming these things in us see for some of us the reason why we struggle is because that we're just we're so spiritually distracted right my wife's having conversations with With a friend, and I've had these conversations with others where they struggle with this truth. Man, like, I don't know if I'm truly believing in the Son of God, and I don't know if I'm received the gift of eternal life. I don't know if I really have the Son, therefore, I don't really know that I have life. And it's like, well, I mean, all sign and evidence on the outside of your life seems to point to these truths. And so, John simply says this like, one of the ways you can know that these truths are true of you is because you have this testimony in your heart you have this testimony in yourself but the thing is we so often get so spiritually busy so spiritually distracted that what we do is we just find ourselves unable to just to be quiet sit still and know that god is god and listening for him to to speak to us to come along and just pour into our heart like listen you really are the child of god we get so busy. I got to go here, and I got to go see, and I got to go do, and I got to go perform, and I got to go think, and I got it, and I got it, I got it, I got it. Then what you do is you go months, you go years. Some of us have gone decades struggling with assurance because we just don't spiritually rest. I was reading Psalm 46 this morning, and that's one of the lines towards the bottom there, the bottom of Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is filled with the language of turmoil. Then eventually this psalmist gets down to the end and is like, listen, be still and know that I am God. I think there's implications for that here in regard to what John is saying. Some of us, when we because we have such a busy soul, we're not being still and hearing and knowing the assuring whispers of truth from the Spirit in our heart, in our soul. That listen, I am God, and you are mine. That was free. That was a little off script, so we'll get back on track. So on one hand, what we have are those who have received God's testimony. And John just says on the other hand what we have are those who do not believe God's testimony concerning his son what's true about them this they do not have the son of god they do not have life and they're un- and, and in their unbelief essentially what they do is they make out god to be a liar in essence what they do is they look at the god who is great they look at the god who knows everything they see his testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But in the end, they draw the conclusion that God just doesn't really know what he's talking about. It's as if they're patting God on the back and saying, listen, God, I know you know everything. And I know you really think that Jesus was the Son of God. But you just have to really understand, I know better than you on this one. And I'm just, I'm just going to choose to disagree with you on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Like, right? It's like, how condescending is that? Like that is how we make God a liar when we don't believe his testimony concerning the son, because what are the facts concerning God knows everything truth teller, no lie can be in him. So if he knows everything, then he's going to in turn factually, truthfully relay everything he knows to us. And if God, the father says, look at Jesus, he is the Christ, he is the son. And then we come along and like, "Hmm, God, you know, I mean, I know you know everything, I know you really believe that Jesus is the son of God, but I actually know better than you on this one. Jesus really isn't the son of God. I'm going to choose to not believe what you say about Jesus. And John says, listen, like, this is just prideful arrogance par excellence. To approach God and say, you know everything. And you can't lie, but I'm actually going to outwit you on this one. Jesus really isn't the son of God. That's how we we make God a liar, because we look at him and go, there's no way you can be telling the truth right now. I am calling you right now, God, a liar, not a truth-teller, in my unbelief as I refuse to submit to the evidence given to us. Now, what are we to do with these things? As we wind up the sermon here, I think it just comes down, down to this. Right, the content of these verses like, you, you read them, and, like, I struggled with this, trying to think about this, and surely some of you guys are there thinking about it as well. Like, you read this, and you're sort of like, like, what's this about? Like, this feels like some sort of distant theological argument like John was having with some false teachers in his church. Like, why does this have any impact or any bearing on me? Like, good for him, you know. Way to go, John. You helped your church out 2,000 years ago, but, like, what does that, like, mean for you as a UIS student? Like, what does that mean for you working at Bun Gourmet? And I think the implications are this. Like, they're, they're, they're everywhere. Right? The reason why it's important for you and I to know that God has testified concerning his son is this. Because when we know what makes for a reliable witness concerning Jesus, then we can know what makes for an unreliable witness concerning Jesus. So you have the Apostle John come along and saying this, if you want to know that Jesus can be believed, received as the Christ, the Son of God. You don't have to go fishing around, I'm telling you. Spirit, water, blood. It's these three things. These are the ones that are going to be the reliable witness to us. God has spoken these things to His Word. His Word is the culminating point of showing us the baptism, the crucifixion, and the Spirit working through, through the Word. These are the things. We don't have to go beyond this to be able to understand the witness that God has given concerning His Son. But if you think about it, there's all kinds of religions, all kinds of leaders, and all kinds of books which come along and propose the exact opposite of what I just said. Let me just think about it. They come along at various times and in various ways. They make the claim that, listen, yes, the Bible, oh, so good for the Bible, but I've got something a little bit better. It's going to help us understand God a little bit more fully. It's going to help us understand Jesus a little a little bit better. But when you begin to examine their claims, what becomes clear is that their testimony clearly falls outside the bounds of God's clear witness. So in some way or another, what they say doesn't confirm the witness of the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Rather, their witness contradicts the testimony of God concerning His Son. So when it comes to religions like Hinduism, Buddhism, or Islam, you do not have true witnesses concerning Jesus. The same goes for the teachings and the writings of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, or Christian science, or anything like the like. In some way or another, when you examine the claims of these religions and examine the claims of these writings and these teachings... No matter how much they might say they agree with Jesus, they're pro-Jesus, they're flowing in the stream of Christianity in some way or another, when you start to see what they think and believe regarding Christ, they wind up either denying the work of Jesus, that He was sent by God to be the Savior of the world, they deny His Christness, or they wind up denying the deity of Jesus, that He is actually the Son of God incarnate. And so this really matters, right? So when you go into the workplace tomorrow, if someone comes along to you and says, like, hey, I'm really pro-Jesus, but I'm part of the Jehovah's Witnesses down the road, like what we're to do is to start narrowing it down and like you can make a beeline to Christ, tell me about who Jesus is. In some way, they're going to deny the testimony of God's witness concerning His Son given for us here in the Word. And you need to know this because when we receive the testimony... Of God's witness concerning his son, the good news of the gospel, what the gospel does is it in turn changes us, saves us, then makes us witnesses so that we can in turn then go out as witnesses bearing witness to the witness of God's testimony. Does that make sense? God's testimony, God's witness, the good news of Jesus wrapped up in that makes us witnesses, and so we got to know what to go out and say and to point people to. So that people can see Jesus rightly. Testimony of the Spirit. Testimony of the baptism. Testimony of His crucifixion. See, our job as witnesses isn't to try to come up with some sort of new way of testifying to Jesus. We're just simply called to live out God's truth as we testify to God's Son in a world that just desperately needs to see this witness. In a way, as we witness to them... We are calling them to the realities of this great hymn. You ever heard of the hymn, "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus"? Some of us old school brothers who are in the Southern Baptist world, we will know that one. (laughs) Amen over there. That's my brother right there. One of the verses in that hymn is this. "'Oh, how sweet to trust in Jesus, just to trust his cleansing blood.'" And in simple faith to plunge me neath the healing, cleansing flood. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace to trust him more. That's what that's what God's calling us out to do, is to be a witness to Christ, calling other people to the reality that it is really, really sweet to trust in Jesus. And we can take him at his word. His baptism and his crucifixion are true witnesses to the realities of who he is. Let's pray. God, your word is good, and your word does not falter. It does not fail. It does not lie. Because your word, the Bible, is a reflection of you, and you're the God who is true. You're the God who tells truth. You're the God who cannot lie. So, Father, in these moments, as we are just thinking about some of these things, a lot's been said. I I, I acknowledge that. But, God, I pray by your Spirit you would take one truth that was spoken today and right now that you would just press that home on the hearts and the minds of my brothers and sisters here in front of me that one thing we need to think on, that one thing that you're calling us to, that one act of obedience, that one act of repentance, that one truth that came from the scriptures, and you would just drive that baby home to our heart today. It's in Jesus' name that I pray these things. Amen.